everyone says they're customer centric, but when you peel the onion back, a lot of people don't do it because one, they don't know how, or there's too much pressure for revenue. So a lot of times you will have a workflow that is maybe getting you more clicks if you're an advertiser or is getting you more conversions, but it's actually not when the customer needs it and why they need it. You need to make sure that customers can use the product and get value out of it to see why it's great before we start putting paywalls in front of them. Tamar, it's great to have you on the CPO Mastery Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. All right, I'd love to start with your background. So you went from engineering to product management to venture. Would love to hear about your journey. It's been a long journey. <laughs> My first job out of graduate school was actually writing list programs for an AI research institute. That was back in the previous generations of AI. But that's how I started out my career and then ended up at Intel where I was writing C++ programs for CAD design. And then I grew up at Intel in management. I started managing teams, ended up leaving and going to a dot-com. I was a VP of engineering. So all of that was on the engineering side. And one of the startups I was at, the head of product left and there was a bunch of PMs who needed a manager and they're like, we'll put them under Tamar. So that was actually my first time doing product management was at a small startup. So I started managing product and engineering and then ultimately went to Google as a product manager. Because at Google, you had to decide. You were either an engineer or you were a product manager, at least at the time when I went. And so I went as a product management director and then at Google ended up ultimately managing both product and engineering teams. But I got as I got more and more into product, I really loved the aspect of the product managers need to kind of do everything. As Jonathan Rosenberg, who was the SVP of product at Google when I was there, he said, you, know, you have to be the CEO of the product. You have to be the GM and you have to do whatever it takes to get the product out. And that's just a really engaging and interesting job. And then, so I stayed and on the product side and then ended up at Slack as a chief product officer where I joined before the IPO, through the IPO, through the acquisition, through the integration with Salesforce. So an amazing time to be at Slack. And then I left just more recently in February and decided I wanted to do something totally different. And one of the things you that defines my career in some ways is always wanting to do new things and learn new things. Mm. So now I am a venture partner at IVP. Could you share some specific aspects of the culture at both Google, Amazon, and even Slack that you thought worked well and contributed to their success? Mm -hmm. And consequently, if you're willing to share, what were some aspects that were negative that you think, you know, you know, didn't work as well about the culture. What would be the I, things? I always find that people's strengths are also their weaknesses and same in companies, which is a very interesting way that you're phrasing the company. So uh, if I go sequentially, Amazon, mm. Amazon is obviously a very customer centric company. Everybody knows that when you're in Amazon, when you're there, you know that everything is about the customer. That works exceptionally well because when you're trying to break ties and arguments, it always goes back to the customer. It was very transformational for me as a product manager and a product leader is being so customer centric. And I think I've taken that with me in every, everywhere I've went. When you have a company that gets large, when you're customer centric, you also need metrics and you need metrics to understand what the customer is doing because you're no longer a small company that can talk to every customer. Amazon was very metrics heavy. And that's the place where I would say mostly really good 
but sometimes you can over rotate to metrics and where metrics will drive you to local minimums instead of understanding that sometimes to make a change, you have to reduce the metrics for your long-term gain because it's very hard to measure your long-term success through website metrics. The other thing that defines Amazon is the writing culture. So Amazon is known, if anybody's read Colin Breyer's book, The Working Backwards, it's known for their six-pagers, so it's a very writing culture. And there was one day where Bezos just made an edict and said, no more power, I never want to see him anymore because you don't think through a problem. You can put three bullets and you haven't really thought it through. That permeates everything about the culture at Amazon. In, again, a mostly positive way, the positive side of it is that you really do think it through. And you, you can't just give a flippant answer or presentation. And everybody reads it before you comment on it. So it's not about how good a presenter are you. And I think that that gives a depth to every conversation. The thing that can sometimes be negative is that you over-engineer your document and you end up spending way too much time wordsmithing because you've got this review with Bezos and you have six pages and what are you gonna use those six pages for and making sure that every word counts. So I'm not sure it's the right optimization of time, but these kind of things take on a life of their own when they're at a big company. But I really appreciated everything I learned at Amazon about customer centricity. Google, the DNA of Google is technical complexity. DNAs of companies come from the founder. Bezos brought the customer centricity, Larry and Sergey brought the technical roots, they're really, really good at solving very hard technical problems. And they're the first to do it, and that's why they've been so successful. When they built the ranking algorithms, they were just better than everyone else. You have a deep respect for that, and it's an engineer's playground in some ways, which is wonderful. I would say the negative of that is the rubric for promotion includes technical complexity. And so sometimes people want to work on things that are technically complex because that's how you get promoted and the customer doesn't really need it. And so wait, what do we need to be successful in the business? You get further and further away from what the customer needs. And sometimes that can end up with, for example, a UI that's harder to use or not enough attention to detail on the simple things mm -hmm. because people are used to all of the heavy lifting of the infrastructure, the really hard problems. And then I guess come, that comes brings me to Slack. Slack is product-led. Founder is a product thinker, product person. The DNA is all about product and craft, which you learn so much about the product craft when you're in Slack. And that is absolutely wonderful. And I love that attention to detail. Going back to the Amazon example of being customer-centric, that sounds very obvious. Why don't more companies copy it? Or can you talk about an example of, here's a decision that we were thinking about and customer centricity, we went this way, but without it, we would have gone the other way. I don't know if you have a decision that you could recall. So everyone says they're customer centric, but when you peel the onion back, a lot of people don't do it because one, they don't know how, or there's too much pressure for revenue. So a lot of times you will have a workflow that is maybe getting you more clicks if you're an advertiser because you want to put that front and center, but it's actually not when the customer needs it and why they need it. And if you take the long-term view, so I'll give a Slack example. We would hear all the time from people, why do you give so much away for free? Like you can use so much of Slack for free. Shouldn't you push conversions, push people, put the bar higher of making sure that people are paying 
And Store was very consistent about, we need to make sure that customers can use the product and get value out of it to see why it's great before we start putting paywalls in front of them. And that's not an obvious answer. Most companies would do the opposite. Most companies would say, I don't want you to really appreciate the product and I wanna make sure you're gonna pay for it first. But I think that was a very customer-centric way of viewing it. We had to fight against when a lot of people gave suggestions, like newer people would come into the business, especially the sales team, we'd develop a new feature, but there were principles around it. The principle was expansion over ARPU. So get your user base over how much you're paying for each user, and then it'll come once you get the expansion. And it did, it always did, we always saw Later, we would, for the large customers who could pay, we would see the expansion. I love the fact that you talk about principles, right? Expansion over ARPU, just easy to remember. And yes. Principles are very important to have in an organization. A lot of people think they have them, but then ask your people in your team, the ICPMs, what the principles are and see if they know. Would you have an example of a principle that you've had at any one of the companies? So that you Slack, set up for your team. At Slack, we put a lot of effort into our product principles, and there were five product principles. I won't go through all of them, yeah. but one of them was don't make me think. And don't make me think is a principle when you see a UI, it shouldn't be overly complicated. You should understand what you need to do, and you shouldn't make your user feel stupid. If you've made your user feel stupid, then that's bad. So we don't want to make a customer think too much. So we had our principles and then we had emojis for each principle that we had. So people could respond to a Slack message with one of the principles, using them, reinforcing them, putting them in presentations. You have to keep doing it because remember you're always hiring new people. Mm -hmm. and people forget these things. If the people in your organization can't repeat the principles or has to like get out a piece of paper to look at what they are, then you haven't done the job of really instilling in them in the organization. Final question on this would be like, what are some principles that you used to come up with these principles? Is it like an offsite? Is it leadership that decides? And how do you come up with these principles that people can really believe? At Slack, it was pulling them out of stuff that was already being done. When I got there, there were principles that were kind of inherent, but they weren't written down anywhere. So we had a design, Ethan Eisman, he's actually did a presentation recently on the Slack principles. He sat down with me, with Stuart, with the co-founder, Cal Henderson, and extracted them and put actual, had a deck with actual examples. Uh, this is a bad principle, the principle is not adhered to. Here's what we did in the UI to fix that and when we actually did do it. So counter examples are as valuable as the, as the examples. And then we refresh them. So then two years later, we're like, okay, these have been around a while. Let's do a refresher. Let's put new examples by it. And he went on a road tour and he met with all the teams, engineering as well as product and design and talked about them. So you have to have a consistency of language. It's very important to get the right ones, but it's almost more important to have the consistency within your organization of talking about the, the same thing. You mentioned about Amazon being customer centric and the downside of that is incremental thinking sometimes, right? Because you're optimizing for your metrics day to day. But if I look at it from the outside, it looks like Amazon takes some big bets, right? And so how do you counter the big bets that they take with what you mentioned earlier about just being super optimized focused? So what I would say about Amazon is they're extremely good at the big bets and they all come from Bezos. Or again, I, my data is outdated. Yes. So yes. when I was there, yeah. like AWS was a push from him. Wow. 
I, Prime was a push from him, like the Kindle was a push from him. So I'm sure that there were other people in the organization who brought up these ideas. He decided which ones to do and which ones not to do. But that was, there were the, the big bats that he did. The incrementalism that I'm referring to came from lower in the organization. So sometimes when you're within a team, you get stuck. When you have a director or a VP who's like hounding you on why did this metric move here? Yeah. I would have biweekly reviews with our VP who would, you had to know every metric. And like, why did this one go up by a half a percent? And then that's where you get into, you're spending so much time managing these metrics, but they were probably better than anyone I've ever seen at doing the big bets that would be, and some of them failed. So Bezos was also willing to take a bet and have it fail. You know, now that you're in venture, you have to assess the likelihood of a company succeeding or not based on their vision that could be early stage. How do you judge the robustness and the likelihood of a success of a company based on their vision that there could take two years, five years, maybe even 10 years to play out? So first of all, the thing that's most fun about this job is meeting with founders and hearing their visions. It's so exciting to talk to a founder and whether or not you agree with the vision, they're so passionate about it, it's wonderful. There are rubrics that people use like why now and is there a mode? And those are to me table stakes. Yeah. Every VC has that, everyone thinks about that, but that's not gonna like differentiate the really exceptional visions from not. I'm, this might be a little counter to other people's thinking, but I'm not a frameworks person because I think frameworks are checkboxes and you can't really innovate and do really dramatic changes, but you have to have some kind of intuition. And expertise in something is about an intuitive sense of why do you do something in one way or another. And so you have to, like when Stuart started Slack, after the game failed and he decided to focus on a chat app. There were a lot of people who looked at that and said, why do we need another chat app? But what he did is he took some trends that were happening, which was people are messaging a lot more. What's happening in consumer side? Let me bring what's happening in the consumer side into the enterprise. And the bar for software is getting higher and enterprise apps aren't very good. So how do we bring the consumer level bar for applications into the enterprise? And this was novel, but when you take something that works in one domain and you bring it into another domain, then that's a lot of times where you get something that's gonna be more powerful. So I believe when you're working anywhere in product, whether it's in venture or in product, you have to develop an intuition and a gut and that comes from talking to a lot of people. That's great. That leads very nicely to our next section around creating vision and innovation. You know, as you said, aside from solving your everyday problems, product leaders need to be abreast of trends and stay ahead of the curve. You know, what are some specific tactics that you've used yourself or seen other successful product leaders use to stay ahead of the tr trends? I think it comes from listening. You have to talk to a lot of people. Some people think to get a good product vision and have a long-term vision, go into a quiet room and sit there by yourself and think. Maybe some people can do that. There are very few who can. You have to be out there and you have to be asking questions and you have to be absorbing, talking to as many founders as you can, people who are using your tools, understand what pain points are, understanding like when you hear something that's a little bit different, like, oh, that's really interesting. That's something that's emerging. What is that new tool that now I'm hearing from three or four people or a new trend? The thing where I think you learn the most is by surrounding yourself with other people who know how to do this. It's kind of like mentorship. 
You want to be mentored by people who are really good. So I think that is by far the most important thing. So to tactical thing that you can do is surround yourself with the best thinkers. And even if you're a more junior person in that organization, be surrounded by people you can learn from. What advice do you have for product leaders that are trying to craft a believable vision and strategy? You know, how can you make it compelling yet also believable? And here, if you can go into actual uh, writing tactics and best practices, will be awesome if you can. I think the things that people do wrong yeah. is they forget about storytelling. Human beings remember stories. They don't remember, here's a slide and here's a number and this person said this. You have to tell a story about why something is important. Why are customers gonna use this? And you have to be very specific about why they will find it important. If you approach this of the vision that you have in too analytical a way, then people really don't remember it. Uh, people also are visual. They remember something visual much stronger than words. And there's a lot of research on that. So I'll give you a very specific example. Uh, Slack recently uh, launched something called Slack Canvas which is when you're in a channel, you can have a document that's attached to the channel that's persistent. You can also create a canvas anywhere in Slack and send it to somebody else. So we were working on this for a long time. And when we presented it to the organization, well before it was developed, it was really important to have a very concrete use case that people would look at and identify it and have it be visual. So I worked with the, our design team to put together a demo to say this is exactly how it could be used in the future. Everybody talks about use cases, everybody talks about the canonical customer, and that putting it all together to something that then people will remember that example and the story. When you said demo, was it a video demo? Was it slides? What did you guys do for your case? We did actual screens, actual mockups. Nice. So a walkthrough, like a Figma demo where it was a, a click through. I don't think it matters what it is because I think you could have just a wireframe if you wanted to. Yeah. But we started, this was actually Salesforce influenced when we were acquired by Salesforce that that's one of their superpowers are really good at doing demos. And you know, the, sometimes the software doesn't work yet, but the demos are still really compelling because then you visualize it. So we created a whole demo team. So part of our, within the design team, there was a small but mighty demo team who worked whenever I had a presentation to give, they helped me do actual demos of future looking products. And then it becomes more alive. You know, let's say that you are thinking about launching a new product like Canvas that you hope is gonna scale to tens, maybe hundreds of millions of users. It's gonna take many, many quarters, okay. right? And when you're creating these category defining products, how do you keep all of your teams motivated through the messy middle of product management? Any, any tactical advice there? You have to have results that you will see right away. You have to have incremental milestones. Whether it's a prototype that you're using for user studies, can't go into a cave with a group of engineers and come out a year later. One, you'll build the wrong product. But you have to be building things that you can get input from people outside your team. Another one of our principles, probably the most important principle at Slack was prototype the path. So constantly be prototyping and getting feedback along the way. So you have to have those milestones and those points where you're getting outside of yourself and outside of your team and they're very motivating. Sometimes in the beginning, it can be just a slide deck that you're showing to a customer. And it could be an internal customer if you're in a big company like a Google or a Salesforce. It could be another team. It doesn't have to be outside your customer, your company, but it has to be outside of your 
team that's building it. I think it's much harder if there's long infrastructure projects that really do take a long time and have less of the customer. And there you still have to have intermediate milestones. You have to have a metric that you're driving towards. Let's say it's we, we had a lot of these big internal projects of code migrations or infrastructure projects. So we would make sure that we had a metric that people saw was moving and then you celebrate it. Many companies struggle with alignment, right? You've managed teams, all of your past companies that are thousands of employees. How do you manage that alignment? How do you make sure everyone's pointing in the same direction? Simplicity of message and repetition. Repetition is so important. We think we talked about everything so many times. Every single time I've done a survey in any organization, in any company, there's a significant percentage of the people who say, I don't know what the strategy is. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? <laughs> but what I realized is it just, you have to keep repeating it. And it has to be a simplicity of th something, again, to the stories, again, to things that people can remember. And the other trick I learned was you have to have people in the organization repeating the strategy and not just listening. It has to be active. So if you have a staff meeting and you say, here's our strategy, then you say, How, Mo, what did you take away from the strategy? How would you put it in your own words? And whatever the way you did that, it can be in a one-on-one, -on -one, it can be in group settings, but people have to have articulated the strategy themselves because it solidifies it in their mind. So having your few objectives, repeating it, and knowing that everybody actually sees it the same way. When he said three to five, is that at a company level or at a team level? So the company level should have three to five objectives. And the, the biggest thing that people say is, but everybody wants to see their objectives in the company. And this is the real trade-off. It's really hard because if you only say the most important ones, then some people will be working on things that aren't represented in the objectives. But the opposite is worse. If you do it so you represent everyone, you, you don't have any priorities. And the way that I tend to look at it is the objectives are the things that will move the business the most. They're the 10X. They're the things you have to do to make the business successful, really successful. Everything else just has to happen. And everything else will happen. Like the books will get closed every month. You don't need an OKR around closing the books. As much as like the people closing the books know that what they're doing is important, it doesn't have to be reflected in a company OKR. When those go down through the organization, a team, an individual team, that's where they're gonna see their work represented. But they also wanna see aligned to the objectives, if there is one. And a good manager will be able to tell them how it aligns to the overall objectives. But I think anywhere you are, you it, things get watered down too much if you're not making hard calls to say this is the most important thing. Moving into our, our last section on career advice and some miscellaneous questions for you. What role do you believe product processes play in scaling companies? Do you think that there is a foundational product management process that significantly contributes to scaling companies up? And if so, briefly explain that process. I think there are lots of processes that could work in organizations. I don't think there is one that says this is what you need to do. You need to make sure engineering and product are aligned that they know what's important and that they agree on what's important. And that means engineers have to respect th something that you know they might not think is important, but you're hearing from the customers. And that also means that product managers have to put 
energy toward understanding what infrastructure is needed, what refactoring is needed to scale. Those are things that I find is some organizations just get disconnected because they don't understand the full picture of everything that's needed. So whatever process enables you to understand the full picture is a good one. But we used OKRs at Slack, Salesforce uses something called V2Mom. It's about setting what's important and how are you gonna measure it. How you do your objective setting, I think is more important than what process you use. Do you use a spreadsheet? Do you use a tool? Do you use a Notion? All of these, in my mind, don't really matter. You wanna review them regularly. You wanna make sure that engineering, product, and design, the three legs of the stool are together represented and feel ownership of what it is. You want to make sure the team understands what they're doing and that they can give feedback to management, but then they also take the feedback of management so that at the end of the day, you have, you have the priorities and you know what, not everyone's going to agree. The other thing, the other side of those clear objectives is flexibility. So if something happens, COVID happens, everyone goes home and is working from home, all of a sudden we get a huge spike in signups at Slack, people who don't really know anything about Slack. So we threw our roadmap out the window and redid our onboarding flow because we had to do that. And so you have to have an organization that's flexible and can change the priorities and then communicate them and be able to say, that's okay, I'm changing this because there are external events. It could be a large customer who comes in and says, I really need this to close a deal. That's okay, then you change it. But if you haven't built a trust and a way of communicating the top priorities, because nobody said that they're gonna change on a quarterly basis. So that's the thing I also hear complaints of people like, well, why did you move my cheese? I had already, like my team is already aligned in doing this, but what do you, do you care that the customer is gonna be successful? That goes back to customer centricity. If you, if everyone knows, well, that's really what's important is the customer is going to be successful not that you started this and you're going to have to stop and i understand the and i empathize with it it's very hard to start and stop projects it reduces productivity so you have to under you it has to be pretty important to do it but you have to be able to do, it. do you feel that engineering and products should have the exact same okrs and they should come up with them together or is it you know come up with okrs and then come uh, afterwards and align on them I think they should be the same because I think that there should be full alignment on what should, what needs to be done. Well, with the caveat, there are some that are purely infrastructure. So you can have one set of OKRs and then you could say, well, these are some infrastructure OKRs. Like we need to get this and this done for FedRAMP or we're scaling and moving our storage layer. So the product needs to say, yes, I understand that these resources are gonna be used for that. And so they have to have visibility and understanding, but they don't have to weigh in on what the infrastructure team is doing. So it's okay to have a different roadmap for that. I think it's a failure mode if it gets too bifurcated. Well, another tactical thing on that is for our OKI reviews, we did myself, the CPO, and Cal, who is a co-founder and CTO, we always did them together. So there wasn't a, well, one review with him, one review with me. They were always together. The, in like developer tools, the services, infrastructure, some of those he would do, and there would be maybe a infra PM who would go. I didn't add as much value there, but he went to every single one. 
So engineering was always representing because at the end of the day, you have to build what you're coming up with. So I thought that alignment was really, really important. Looking back at your careers, what factors do you believe have contributed to your success personally? A lot of luck. <laughs> if I picked out one thing that was the most important, it was listening. Being able to listen to, again, to trends, to what's happening in the market, what's important in your job, being able to assimilate that, and then being able to learn from the best people. So being around, I talked about that earlier, being around really good people so that you learn from them, you're gonna have to have thick skin, you're gonna have to take a lot of feedback, but you're gonna learn about the craft of product and you're gonna be a much better product manager afterwards. Final question of the day is, how do you envision the future of product management? Are there emerging trends that you believe product managers should keep an eye on and what can they do about it? Probably a very typical answer these days, but it is AI. AI is so important in how it's changing our jobs, all of our jobs, making us more productive. So there are things that product managers are gonna be spending a lot of time on. For example, customer calls. You do a lot of customer calls or you're synthesizing information from your sales team. AI can make that so much easier and better and can make you more productive. At IVP, we do customer calls when we're looking at an investment and now we summarize them. We use ChatGPT to summarize them. It can save hours of time. So understand the tools that are out there, understand how it can help you do your job, and I think it's gonna really change how teams are formed. I think it's so important that you understand where you can leverage AI, not just in the products you're building, but in doing your job and how can it make you more effective. Tamar, this has been fantastic. Thank you for sharing with all of our audience, you know, detailed specifics about, you know, the, your past experience and things that are gonna be so helpful for product managers. We really appreciate your time here on the CPO Mastery Podcast. And thank you for having me and thank you for everything you do for product managers, for training the next generation of product managers. I think it's awesome. Thank you very much.